Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm hoping by the time we get through this book that I will be able to spell Ecclesiastes. If not, I'll just keep using my abbreviations, but uh, uh, it's not one that comes around often. But Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is where we are, and um, chapter 3 is probably one of the more famous passages of Ecclesiastes, and um, he is very thorough as he goes through this book, but we're at some life questions that still are <clears throat> bandied about today. I mean, people still ask all these questions. I could... Uh, we hear people still ask this in the, in, the, in the span of their life, and we can sense that frustration. And knowing that God puts that frustration in people's life to draw them to Him, it makes it a ripe opportunity for us when we hear people ponder these things to help steer them towards Christ. But so far, by the time here we are in chapter 2, and we're ready for around verse 18, uh, Solomon has tried work. He's like, I'll just set my mind to work. Maybe that's what makes man, that's why man's here. He's also tried uh, wisdom. I'll just try to learn. I'll just see how much I can learn. I'll study everything. Maybe that's why man is here. He also thought, well, maybe fun. Maybe man's here just to have fun. I'll see what, I'll try all the fun. I'll try all the partying. I'll try all the pleasures that I can give myself to. I won't turn anything back for myself. And he didn't. And he sought all those things out. He decided, you know, between those two, between wisdom and learning and those type of things, you know, effort, and between fun and partying, between those two, wisdom's better. Learning is better. You know, if I'm going to have to boil it down to these two categories, fun and pleasure versus wisdom and learning, he goes, wisdom's better. You know, he calls it folly instead of just fun, but folly and wisdom. He goes, wisdom is better. And between those two, he goes, when I consider them both, if I consider and I think about folly playing out all the way, and I think about wisdom playing out all the way, they, I come to the same conclusion. They both die. A foolish person dies, a wise person dies. He goes, someone who's never thought about anything is going to die. Me, who's set here, Solomon, who's set and thought of all these things, I'm going to die. He said, they come to the same end. Seems like it's foolishness. It seems like it's a waste of time. In fact, verse 15, he says, Then I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it also happened even to me. And why was I then more wise? You know, why did it bother? He says, then I said to my heart, this is also vanity. It's just empty. It just seems like, man, I'm the wisest man who ever lived. and It, it doesn't matter. It's not going to preserve my life. I'm not going to continue on forever. He's like, man. And so he, he pursued this hard, too. It's not like this is a passive effort. He's kind of like, you know, this is a little side hobby of mine. You know, wise man here. He's like, no, he's pursuing it hard. So we're in, only in chapter 2. But we have to remember that this is old man Solomon writing. He's lived a life. Um, He's had 700 marriages. That takes time. You know, you have to get married a lot. You know, and we've done some of the math before. How many times you get married and he has 300 concubines? It's 1,000 different wives in that way. You know, that takes time to amass. You know, it's not just something you run out and do. He's built houses. He's pursued that. You know, oh, I've pursued different, different kinds of, of houses and building efforts in that way. That takes time. You know, a house, especially if it's your house, it goes slow if it is being built. You know, a building progress uh, takes time. Vineyards. It takes a long time to develop an agricultural thing. You know, to have it, plant it, to watch it grow, let it go, to come to fruition. It takes time. You have to plant it and watch it and do all these things. Um, and so time has passed. It's just because we've looked at two chapters, we can't think of, oh, he just played at it like we would play at a hobby. You know, I think of like hobbies I get interested in. It's like, oh, you might mess with that for a year. There's some lifelong hobbies, but, you know, sometimes a year or a few weeks, or I've tried that twice, and was it really a hobby? You know, but I pursued that for a while. Solomon has done more than that. He has invested life. He has invested time. He has invested money. And so he has done stuff. And he's not done little stuff. He has done serious stuff. 
enduring stuff. When he did it, he did it to last. He did it to the best of his ability, and his abilities were great. You know, and so he did these things. I mean, things that he did still exist. Uh, the eastern part of the wall that they, they prayed to in Jerusalem, and they think that that's part of the basic understructure that he built, you know, that it's still part of Solomon's infrastructure that he, he laid down. I've read many a debate on was it his or his. And it's still an astonishment. You can take a tour, and they'll go down there, and there's a stone down there that is massive. And they're like, we don't know how you can move anything like that. We don't know how it can be built. I mean, it's still a wonder to go over and look and see what they did. And that even wasn't even the temple. This was just to make the ground level to be able to build it on. You know, that is there. The stables that are there, the troughs that are there. Angel said she had a picture drinking out of one of Solomon's troughs. And so I've not seen that picture, but, uh, but she said she's done that. Uh, and other things that have still existed, that still exist. I mean, he built it and he built it to last. You know, there's things that I have done that doesn't last, doesn't hold up, it wears out. Um, he wrote books. We still have them in our possession today. You know, chances are in your lap. Uh, a song that he wrote. He wrote several songs, you know, but we have the one that is preserved for us, the Song of Solomon. And so we have them in our hand. He did enduring things. You know, and to have a, a work that has spanned through you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years, is saying something. That is doing something. So we're not talking about light endeavors. Solomon went at it, and he went at it, and it lasted. It made a difference. It made a mark. Uh, imagine... You know, oh, I'm going to try farming. You know, it's uh, you know, something to try. I've planted gardens here or there. Uh, I haven't stuck with it. But, you know, to, to develop a farm and then be able to go out and walk and to have a stable still existing in 2018, that's a work, you know, that is there, you know, to have those troughs and things. To walk down rows of a, of a vineyard that you laid out and to finally have it matured and to be there, that took some time, effort, and energy. You had to hire, you know, and you had to buy, you had to work the ground. You had to then, you know, invest and plant all this stuff. And then to finally be able to walk down through those rows and see what you did, you know, and then look at it, you know, it would be impressive. You know, it's kind of neat to see works that people start and get done. Solomon did farms. He also did vineyards in that way. He designed the temple. The temple that he constructed took seven years to build. That's not just something willy-nilly. Seven years to build, I don't know how long it took him to plan it. Um, it was not just a hobby. You know, if you're doing that, that is a, life, a life's work. If you're going to build a building like the temple. Um, and, and again, this was for God, dedicated to God, that he prayed about it, that he thought about the construction, and they pre-assembled it to the point where they could bring it on the spot. Um, and the materials that it took, um, we can't estimate the value of what it was worth, because what value would you put on the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that has the Ten Commandments from Moses? You can't really value that, you know, so you can't just really say, what would this be worth? But we can tally up uh, the materials that were used. And so, uh, so you can't put a price on the Ark, but, you know, there's labor, craftsmanship, we probably can't do that. But just the raw materials. If we just took the raw materials between the gold and the silver and the cedar from Lebanon and the tapestries and all that, and we tallied it all up, by the best estimates today, they say that the temple would have been worth $20 trillion. $20 trillion, a number that we can't get our head around. I mean, like I said, gold, silver, cedar, uh, the precious stones that are in it, and the tapestries, the woven works, you know, the, the, the fabrics that are done. Um, to kind of give you some perspective on what $20 trillion is, the United States uh, federal budget for 2015 was $3.8 trillion. And so the temple cost five times what uh, an annual budget for a U.S. government would be. 
Um, that still doesn't do much for us, but let's think about what our budget holds. You know, so an annual budget, like I said, the number I got was 2015, was $3.8 trillion. That budget covered housing. It covered veterans and veterans' benefits. Think how many veterans we have and how much we give. We don't give them near enough, you know, but, but what that covers. Medicare, uh, the health care system that the government provides for people. Uh, just go to the doctor and see how much it is. I had a, the guy at work whose wife got sick, took a 15-minute flight from Columbus Regional to Methodist, $42,000 for 15 minutes. There's a, there's a lifeline flight for you. So it doesn't take long to, to tally up a bill. So you take all the Medicare and all the health care in that way that the government budget cares for. Education. The funding of the government, the salaries, the employees, and what's going on there, let alone the upkeep of the buildings and things in that way. The food and agriculture that is considered in the budget. The transportation, the upkeep of the transportation and the infrastructures, things that we're even trying to increase. Social security payments that go out to all the retirement people, uh, retirement people that that goes out you know, through the federal government. This is part of the budget. Um, the sciences, uh, paying for them, NASA, and, and all the different researchers we have going on. Uh, the energy department, and, and just, you know, exploring, uh, looking for oil and wind and solar and all that that we cover. And then, and that makes up less than half the budget. What's over half of our budget is the military. The military takes $598 billion of our annual budget as to do for uh, research, for the employees, for the soldiers, for deployment, for the gas that goes in the fuel. We passed you know, some convoy cars today. To, to the vehicles, the equipment, the missiles, the bombs, the boats, the, the, the submarines and all that. $598 billion. How diverse that is. And we stop when we think about how much our country spends in a year. You know, when you think of those budgets and you think of the Medicare and the health care and all that stuff, you think, how much could that possibly cost? You know, and when we hear $3.8 trillion, it still kind of loses it on us. But to know that Solomon spent five times that amount on one building, I think that should give us an idea how spectacular this one building was. This one building that was set apart for God. It should have been the most expensive building, the most elaborate building, the most biggest building in the world to have the biggest budget. Should have been for him. He's worthy of it all. You know, so it was there. And let alone, you know, that's just the, the materials and the seven years to build it uh, and just the cost and the thought and the labor and the energy and the planning that Solomon had invested his life in would have been enough for one person in one lifetime, let alone that was one of his accomplishments. He also built mines. Uh, they have found copper mining uh, that they think was the biggest copper mining in history were things that Solomon had plotted out and planned out so they could mine the copper. They found the biggest smelting operation in the ancient world was developed by Solomon. It's down on the, the southern coast. And we're standing there where the wind blows and the whole way that he had thought about all these things. They say it is a wonder. It was a feat of scientific wonder where these were placed, how it was, and smelting processes taking and, and, uh, the, the natural ores and then pulling the metals out of it. Solomon had built one of the ones that they said is still astounding today uh, that was there. They, and then they found the ruins of that. And Solomon has done all that. That's just a few that I've mentioned and more in his lifetime, in one lifetime. He makes Ben Franklin seem like he's lazy. You know, Ben Franklin's like, you think of bifocals and fire departments and printing and all the different things that he did, science, electricity, kite flying. He has all that, and it's like, man, Solomon like makes that look like, oh, what, what else did you do? You know, he, you could literally say that to him. This guy was something. You know, he was something or something to do that. Can you imagine the accomplishment of doing any one of those things? I was just thinking, like, man, planting a garden you know, in that way, let alone building a house, building a temple, and all these things. It's hard. Let alone if you did all of those things. We don't really have anything to really kind of compare to it. 
But, you know, put yourself in that situation. Like, say you did one of those things. Say you built the temple. How would you feel? You know, to, to finish that, to start that, to plan that, to have it come and be done to the point where God's glory comes in and fills it up and drives out the priest that he's well pleased with it. Wouldn't you feel a little bit of, I did something. I did something that mattered. I did something that made a difference. I did something that people will respect and, and that surely I hope God appreciates, you know, that I was able to do this for him, that build this place that my father David wasn't allowed to do, that he had put it off to me and I was able to do it to fruition and it is done and, and God's glory dwells in there. And you think you have a little bit of, I did that, you know, a little bit of satisfaction in it, a little bit of a sense of accomplishment, at least, right? You know, that, hey, I built a smelting thing, or we, we did a mine and there was actually copper there, or we were able to do all these different things. You know, that you would think, man, I made a mark in the world. That's most people. What, what do you want to do in life? I'd like to make some kind of difference, right? You know, if you ask people that, I'd like to make some kind of difference in my life. I'd like for my life to matter. I'd like for it to count. I'd like to make something that matters and helps other people in that way. Solomon had done that in spades, you know, to the point where the ancient world was coming to him saying, the half has not been told us. You are even more fantastic. Things are even better than we could even imagine, as what the Queen of Sheba says. But Solomon is wise. Right? He's been given wisdom. And so he's going to consider this. He's a thinker. And so he thinks over, and he's at the end of his life, these things that he has done, and he's seen them, and he's watched them, and he knows the sweat and the effort that he's put into them, and he knows the impact that it makes on the world for the things that he has done. How great Israel is. Israel is the controlling um, thing of the world at this point in time. It's the golden age when they were at their prime. And as he surveys his work on this grand scale, he considers his achievements, and, and you have to think, well, how would he feel? You know, it's hard for us to imagine what it would feel like completing one of those things, let alone to do all those things. Uh, the good thing is we don't have to wonder how he feels. He tells us. So chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun. He hated it. It's not like, that, that's not a passive word. That's usually if you say hate around here, you usually get one of the kids say, oh, we don't say hate. You know, you get told that. You know, we don't use that kind of an extreme word. You know, it's just an extreme word. He says he hated it. And he tells us why he hated it. Why did he hate this extreme labor that he put forth? So verse 18, he says, Yea, I hated all my labor, which I have taken under the sun. Here he says, why? Because. Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. He's like, I'm going to do all this work, and somebody else is going to get all the benefit from it. You know, there's something frustrating about that. You know, that, that you've put all the work and effort in, and somebody else come in and claim the credit. Or somebody else will get the benefit of it. Or somebody else gets the, all, the, the, all the profit off of it. You're like, oh, work for the man. You know, the boss gets all the money. You know, I get nothing. I did all the work. You know, there's, there's something a little bit frustrating in that. Solomon's considering it. He's like, look what I've done. I've built a nation. i built this nation who's done wondrous things. And I have wondrous things that I can show. He goes, somebody else is going to take over. Somebody else is going to be CEO. Somebody else is going to be king and run this. And he's like, man. It all gonna, I'm going to die. It's all going to stay here. Everything that I've done, no matter what kind of a mark it is and how long it lasts, if it lasts to 2018 and some of it has, he's like, it doesn't matter. We often talk about, right, that, that the, there's no U-Haul attached to the hearse. You know, there's Brian and everything he did. No, it just takes you away. All your stuff stays here. Um, if it's good stuff, they put it on display, right? King Tut, you know, didn't live long, but you know, we're still looking at all the stuff they buried him with. You know, he's gone. The stuff's still here. You know, it, doesn't, doesn't do good. You can't take it with you. Someone else stays behind. Someone else runs it. Somebody else gets it. Uh, family fights over it. Wills divided over it. People come in and steal it. They, they take it all over. They break it all up. You know, and, and it's sad when you hear some of that sometimes, right? 
family farms that have been worked on forever. They get so big and with tax laws and everything else, they have to break it up to sell it. And it's like, man, the family worked hard for that. And now it's all torn apart. You know, it, it makes you kind of sick, you know, the way it goes that way. And Solomon is considering that. I've worked all this. It's probably all going to fall apart. It's all going to go away. It's all empty. I hate it. I hate that I worked all this way and it's all going to count for nothing. And he's like, I don't even know what kind of son I'm going to. I don't know how it's going to be. Uh, verse 19, he says here, he says, um, and who knows whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? He goes, I don't know the guy taking over after me. Is he going to be smart? Is he going to be wise? Or is he going to be a fool? Is he going to improve what I've done? Is he going to work on the things I've done to make it better? Or is he going to take what I've done and squander it and make it worse, make it go away? He goes, I don't know. Um, I was trying to think. I remember it was like the late 80s, early 90s. There was a pizza franchise that went in. I can remember where it was. It was in front of like where Five Guys and Fries are in, in Greenwood now. Right around that McDonald's there. And it was a pizza franchise. And we watched them build it all up. We're like, oh, who's that? What is that? We'll have to get by there and see that. And I think no sooner than they got it done, they closed it. And I remember hearing on the news why. It was like this dad had built up this franchise. It was the fastest going pizza franchise in the United States. And then he turned it over to his kids. And they squandered it all away. They ran it in the ground. They're like, money, nobody has to work anymore. And then, then he went and then took back over and closed it all. It's like, nah, I'm not just going to let them run it in the ground. You know, that, again, he, same dilemma Solomon's in, right? I've worked hard. I've given it all. I give it to my kids. And then my kids squander it. You know, and so then it all goes for nothing. It, you can kind of sense that to the point where I was even trying to find it. And I think it was a Piccoli. I, I, I found one name that was Pantera's, I think. Uh, Pizza was the one that I could find that fit that story. But uh, he doesn't know. But that, that's stuff that Solomon's worried about. I'm just going to do all this and they're just going to run it in the ground. You know, who knows how long it'll last? So verse 19, or all the verse, he says, uh, And who knows whether he shall be a wise or a fool? Yet he shall have rule over all my labor. He's like, I can't control. I'll be dead. He goes, I don't know if he's wiser, but he'll control over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. He said, I've proven myself to be wise. I'm going to turn it over to somebody. He goes, I don't know if they're going to be wise or a fool. I'll have no control. I'll have no say. And they're going to do it. He goes, I don't know. My heir is going to do this. And we know who his heir is. It's Rehoboam, his son. He goes, but he's just going to be handed everything. I've worked hard. I knew what it took to build this building. I knew what it took to build this nation. And I'm going to hand it over to somebody that, doesn't, that just thinks it comes to him, just thinks it's a silver spoon. He gets it with no effort. He's just born. And just because he's born, he gets it. And Solomon's a little frustrated at that. He goes, it's just vanity. It's just empty. It's just a waste. He goes, why did I bother if I'm just going to give it to somebody else who can squander it away? Uh, verse 20, he says this. He says, therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. And again, he did fantastic work. And what's his reward for it? Despair. Now, despair means it's hopelessness. It's hopeless. Why did I bother? Why did I do all this? It doesn't matter. You know, it's just empty. You're just throwing it away. But then he gives us the key in that phrase because he says he did all this for under the sun. His goal was wrong. Who he did it for was wrong. Why he did it was wrong. Again, he is proving a point for you and me to save us grief. But he did it just for here and now. He didn't do anything for an eternal reason. And that's his problem. He just worked for here and now. And if he just worked for here and now, everything that you make stays here. Everything that you build stays here. Everything that you had when you die goes to somebody else. It all goes that way. And that is the point. And God does that. So you will feel frustrated. So that you will think, is there anything else? And I want to get to that end yet. Uh, I want to read what else he says here. Look at verse 20. He says, So, therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair. Again, he feels like it's hopeless. Of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom, 
and a knowledge and an equity, yet to a man that has not labored therein, he shall leave it for his portion. This is also vanity and a great evil. He sees it more than just empty. He sees it as evil. He sees it as wrong. Verse 22. For what hath a man of all his labor and of all the vexation of his heart, wherein he has labored under the sun? Like, like what point is there? Verse 23. For all his days are of sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. He just, again, comes to the conclusion. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. They're going to give it to your son. Who knows what he's going to do with it? And Solomon has a legitimate fear here because we know his son. Solomon, for having the 700 wives and 300 concubines, had three kids that we have records of. One boy, two daughters. And the one boy was Rehoboam. Rehoboam didn't turn out too good. And it makes you wonder for Solomon, for all his worry here, like, I don't know, he has to know it's going to be his heir, and if you only have one, he knows who it's going to be, and it's not like he's a young kid when he takes over, he's in his 40s, we'll see here in a minute, but uh, was it because Solomon was doing all this work that he was too busy to train his son? Probably. You know, I kind of think of that, was it Bobby's Goldboro song, Cats in the Cradle? Cats in the I'm just like you, Dad, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah, I got no time for you, Dad, that whole sad thing. I think Casting Crowns had a version like that, Castles in the Sand or something. It was like, y'all, if you spend all your time for this and you don't invest in your kids, then you have nothing that lasts. And so he, he should have, although he did think about it, because we have in Proverbs, uh, Solomon wrote at least 24 where he addresses his son specifically. My son, you know, and he writes down, he tries to pass on wisdom, gives it in a book that we still benefit from today. And so he's addressed them. But let's just look and see what Rehoboam did. Uh, we, we have a pretty concise thing, because when you have an evil king, he kind of boils it down to, here's all the wicked things he did, and then he dies. So uh, 1 Kings 14. Uh, we studied him a little while back. It's in 1 Kings. So you figure, uh, David, it's at its height. When Solomon takes over, Israel is in its prime, prime, I mean, to the point where they can't be attacked. The world is in marvel of them. They have silver-like gravel around them. They just have all these wondrous things. And then he gives it to his son. It's like anything else. It takes one generation. One generation for things to fall apart. So, so 1 Kings 14, look at verse 21. It says, And Rehoboam, uh, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah and was 40 and one years old when he began to reign. So Solomon had some time with him. He had 41 years. He could have invested with him, but I don't... Again, with you doing that much stuff, he's just too busy. He didn't invest in his son, I'm assuming. He said, he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nama, the Amoritess. That's probably part of his trouble. He wasn't supposed to marry that many women. He wasn't supposed to marry out of those tribes, and he did. And so he's done all these things wrong, finding out that, hey, God's rules are better, which is part of his conclusion, right? And so he, he, he's lived this out for us to see that it doesn't work right. So who knows all these pagan things get worked into the son's mind. Verse 22. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the tribe that uh, they, they, they rule from. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed, above all that their fathers have done. Now, on Wednesday night, we're at the end of the nation of Israel, and we see that they get worse and worse and worse. But we're just getting off Solomon here. We're getting from David, the one who God always holds up as a standard. Are they like my servant David? And here we have David's grandson. And David's grandson is horrible. Verse 23. For they have built them high places and images and groves. That's all idolatry. On every high hill and under every green tree. They worship all these pagan gods. Verse 24. 
And there were also sodomites in the land. Um, that tells you the state of the moral uh, there. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. They went right back to everything that they'd fought against. He takes it right back to it. So Solomon's thoughts were true. He's like, I give it to my son. And then my son just does, undoes everything that he did in one generation. All this life that he pours into it. His son only reigned for 17 years and he runs it all in the ground. Uh, verse 25. And it came to pass in the fifth year of the king Rehoboam uh, that that Shishak, uh, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. Everything that Solomon had built up, all the money and things that he had amassed. Here comes the king, says, I think I'll take all that. And so they have no fear of him. And so they came to the king's house, and they took away all that he um, took away all, and he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their stead brazen shields, and committed them into the hands of the chief of the guard, which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so that when the king went into the house of the Lord, that the guard bare them and brought them into the, uh, back into the chamber guard. So they had to take these brass ones. They weren't even gold. And they couldn't take them home. They had to leave them in the house and bring them back. And the next verse he dies. And so he's not very good. You know, he plunges them into idolatry. He invites in and lets wicked kings come in and take everything that his dad had, had built up. To the point where it's shiny, it's coppery looking, but it's not gold, it's brass, you know, it's a penny. You know, so that kind of tells you the, 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 the difference there. And so he brings it around to shows it, it's for nothing. Uh, they just plunged them into sin, plunged them into idolatry, lost the treasures that Solomon had amassed. And most of the kings, most all of the kings that follow after him are just as bad, they're not worse. And the few good ones that we do have, they spend their whole time as king trying to get rid of the idolatry, trying to get rid of the wickedness, trying to change the morality to the point where they finally scratch it, seems like they're making a difference, then they die and the next king comes in and he's worse than that ever was. And so it seems like all they're trying to do is get back to a moral starting point and they take it and they drive it down further and further and further and they drag it worse and worse and worse to the point where they never achieve what it was under Solomon. Solomon was like, what will they do? Will they run it in the ground? Yes, they run it in the ground, and they make it horrible. And so, like I say, the best they can do is try to get back and regroup, but it, but it doesn't work. So it does seem empty. It does seem vain. It does seem like he was right. You know, that you give it to them, and they just run it in the ground. It just seems hopeless. So back to Ecclesiastes 2. And so Solomon's like, well, I'm going to come to some conclusion. If I'm just going to work under the sun, there has to be something that is worthwhile. And so he's going to use a phrase here that he's going to use at least four more times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's kind of like how to make the best out of a bad situation. So it's like, if life is bad, if life stinks, then you die. You know, what are we to do with this life? And so this is making the best of a bad situation, but it's still bad. Uh, verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for man than he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw... That was from the hand of God. He says, well, the best thing that we could do in a hopeless world is enjoy ourselves. At least we should try to enjoy ourselves. Enjoy the work that you do. Be satisfied with the work that you do. Uh, Enjoy what you're doing. Eat eat and drink. Do what you can. And the world has taken up that philosophy, right? They say that there is nothing past past this life. So they are just working under the sun. And so they usually come up with the phrases like, if it feels good, do it. Let's just just go have fun. Um, Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. You know, enjoy life. Enjoy it to the fullest. Enjoy it to the, uh, to have the most zeal you can. Try to do it all. You know, Paul even mentions that. You know, hey, if there's no point, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. You know, if there is no af- afterlife. And so, if that is life's goal, 
just to be here and just to exist and this is all there is, then you should just eat, drink, and be merry and try to be as happy as possible because one day you're going to die. So you better enjoy life while you got it. If there is no eternity, if there is no God, if there is no everlasting life, if this is all there is, then Solomon's conclusion is you better enjoy what you have because it gets no better. But there's more, right? We know that. Verse 25, he says, for, he says of himself here, he says, for who can eat or who else can hasten here into more than I? He basically says, if that is the goal of life is to be as happy as you can, he goes, who has the chance to be the happiest than me? He says, because I am the wisest, I am the richest, I am a king, I'm the most handsome. I am, he sounds like he's uh, Gaston, right? So he's kind of like, no one handsomer than I, no one spits like me. And then he does, he's, like, he's like this, he goes, I should be the happiest under the sun because I am the richest, I can do anything I want as much as I want, I have no boss, I am the boss. And he's like, and I'm not happy. You know, no, no one could do it more than me. He's like, man, it's, it's pitiful, it's just empty. To verse 26, he says, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, uh, in his sight wisdom and knowledge, and joy, but to the sinner he gives travail to gather and to heap up, and he may give to him that is good uh, before God. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. He says that uh, during their day especially, how God would do it is that the wicked people he would punish, um, the people that were righteous, God seemed to reward. Think of like Job in that way. And he says, and God would take away from the wicked and he would give it to the righteous. He says, so he tries to make it obvious. Be righteous. Live righteous life. You know, the righteous are going to win. The righteous are the ones getting things right. We should do this. He's trying to move people to understand that there's more, that they have to live for him. That under the sun does not just get it. And he still says, it seems like they don't get it and it just seems empty and it just seems like life's not worth living. But let's get to the conclusion of the matter. If you live for just under the sun, life is empty, and you better just have fun because you die. But we know, as Christians, there's more. We know that life does not end at the grave, and we know that there is eternity. And so let's put Jesus in the middle of this, because that is the answer to all these dilemmas. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is called the resurrection chapter, because Paul uses the whole chapter to prove Life after death, right? That, that, that's why he does it. Um, I'm not going to preach all that, but uh, start with the gospel in a nutshell, verse 3. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the foundation of Christianity. Life after death, that Christ died and he rose again, showing that death has been defeated, that there is life after death, and we can live forever if we repent and trust in him. This is it, the gospel in a nutshell, if we can have it. And then he goes on to argue all the reasons why we know that. He talks about gardening we take a dead seed we put it in the ground it springs forth again we know there is life after death he reasons that we can all have it because in adam the first adam we all die and because adam sinned we all died we understand that in christ who has defeated death if we are in him we can all live and so if you repent and trust in him and you become a descendant of christ then you can live forever and so he uses the whole first adam second adam argument he goes through all these things proving uh, that we can live again. Look at verse 16. He says, For if the dead raise not, then Christ is not dead. And he's like, And we know Christ rose. I saw it. And, and, and he's able to testify to it. Um, so he, he argues that point. Verse 19, he says, 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we have all men most miserable. Because people are like, well, maybe just we believe in that, and then we'll just have a good life because we believe that Jesus rose again. He goes, if we only believe that now and it's not real, what, what good is there in that? You know, how many things do we deny ourselves um, that, that you could enjoy? And he's like, no, then we are all men most miserable. No, Christ lives. There is eternity. We do live forever. That's his whole argument here. Uh, uh, verse 20. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits that them that sleep. He goes, he's the first one. Verse 21. For since by man came death and by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even in Christ also shall we all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. And then after that, afterward, they that are Christ said he's coming. He's like, no, we're going to live forever. Everyone's going to live forever who've repented and trusted in Christ. Uh, verse 30. He says, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? He's now making a personal account. He's like, if I have not seen the risen Christ, if I did not believe in life after death, he goes, why am I always in jeopardy? We can read the account of Paul's life in Acts. He was always at the threat of death because he was going around saying Christ is who he says he is. And he was going against what Israel thought. He was going against what uh, these pagan people thought. And he was always in jeopardy. He says, no, Christ is risen. Why else would I be in jeopardy? Because if I was making this up, I would not choose to be beaten. I would not choose to be, uh, be plundered. I would not choose to be snake bit. I would not choose to be tortured. I would not choose to be hated. He goes, I would choose an easier life. He goes, but no, I've seen the risen Christ. He says, no, no one else would choose this. I would say it if I was lying. I would not choose a life like this. No, no, Christ is alive. Verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus of our Lord. And he says, and I die daily. Uh, that means every day his life was in jeopardy. Every day he could die. At one point in time, there were 40 men who took a vow that they would never eat again until they killed Paul. These guys were always after him to kill him. Every town he went to, they were after him to kill him. When you come into a town, the prophets would say, they're going to beat you. You're going to die. You're going to give up your life. And he's like, yes, I know. But he kept doing it for Christ's sake to spread the gospel. He kept promoting it in that way. Verse 32, he says, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus... He's had to fight with beasts. He's also had to fight with beastly men, men who went after him. Uh, Demetrius, the silversmith. Paul comes into town. People get saved. They're not going to buy his silver idol anymore. He wants him killed, and he takes him to court, and he wants him thrown in jail and beaten. Paul's like, I had to face all these guys. Why? Because I preached the risen Christ. He goes, what advantage is it of me if the, if the dead rise not? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He goes, if there is no resurrection, there is not life after this life. He goes, why bother? He's like Solomon. He goes, then we'd have to conclude with Solomon. It's empty, it's vain if there's just life under the sun. But he concludes that, no, there is life. I've seen it. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He goes, I've seen it and I testify of it. Uh, verse 50, the same chapter. Uh, he tells us, he says, now I say, brethren, after he tells us all about the resurrection body, Verse 50 says, Now I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And at that last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall we be brought to pass the same which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thank Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says we have victory. We can overcome death. We can live forever if we repent and trust in him. Life continues. And he says because of the resurrection, life matters. Life matters. It continues on. What we do now matters. How you live now matters. What you do for him will be rewarded. 
Your life does count. Your work does count. What you do in this life counts. Your life will continue. Because he says this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. We, can't, we don't come to the same conclusion as Solomon when Solomon's like, why did I do all this if I, I leave it to somebody else and it goes on? Your labor, labor in the Lord continues. When you die and you rise again, you continue to serve the Lord. You continue to work for Him. Everything you've done in this life matters in eternity. You've sent it ahead. Your mansion will be bigger. Your, your work will be better. Your job, you'll have better rewards for it. It all matters. It all continues. You've sent it ahead. You don't just take it with you. You join up with it in eternity. So your labor does make a difference. Because we will live and work for Jesus forever. Your labor is not in vain. It does matter. Every sacrifice you make in this life counts for eternity. Every hard effort, every hard time you go through, every grief you've been given in this life because of your Christianity will count. It will matter forever. Like I said, every effort, every struggle, every dollar used, every dollar given, every penny spent forth, every time, thought, effort, energy you've given towards eternity, towards saving others, towards expanding the word of Christ and helping Him, serving Him, all count. It's not vain. It all matters. It all works. It all continues. You get to see the fruits and the rewards, and we know that He is controlling it all. It's not like we turn it over to somebody else. We're like, well, I hope it matters. It's done for Him. We do it for Him. He's in control. We know that He's going to use everything to His glory and to His purpose. So life for a Christian, it matters. It continues. It's not fruitless. It's not effortless. It's not empty. It's not vain. It matters. Take a parenthood. If you give your life and you pour your life into your children to make sure they understand salvation, who Christ is and what it is, and you teach them empathy and care and concern for others, and then they carry that torch of Christianity on and they teach it and instill it in their kids, what a, what a heritage you have, right? We, we talk about that, the, the footprints of a man. That he would live a life in that way that impacts and marks the next generation and the next generation. It continues on. Christ even talks about, or Paul even talks about, that our crown of rejoicing, one of the rewards we'll have in heaven, are other people impacted by the gospel that we did that we helped out for that we we gave some small part in that we either sold the seed or watered it or gave the you know he gave some increase it matters it all matters it's not all empty it's not all vain it's not all worthless it's not all eat drink and be merry because tomorrow you die it can be delayed gratification right later we'll have our rest later we'll have our comfort later we'll have the merry and the joy and the rest that he promises us you know, if we work for him now that's why paul says that's why i die daily that's why I suffer for Christ, because I know one day it will be rewarded. And he's an example. He's an example for us, so it all matters. Jesus is the answer. And eternity is there, and we have it evidenced around us. And so Solomon, in working it out and fleshing it out under the sun, says it's all empty, and it is. But in light of Christianity, in light of eternity, it all matters, and it all makes a difference. And that's why Jesus is the hope, and that's why it's called good news. And it's a joy to be able to serve him in that way.